Nature's Archive Podcast, a Jumpstart Nature production. Hi, I'm Michael Hawk, and welcome to Nature's Archive Podcast, where I interview some of the most interesting and creative nature advocates and naturalists on the planet. If you have a fascination with nature and ecology, this podcast is for you. I create this podcast as a personal passion, and it's my desire to turn it into something even bigger. If you enjoy the show, please take a moment to subscribe, leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast service, and share this episode with a friend. Thank you. Today, you'll become a beaver believer, thanks to my guest, Ben Goldfarb. Ben is the author of the book, Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. Eager is the winner of the 2019 Penn E.O. Wilson Literary Science Writing Award. Aside from being an author, Ben is an environmental journalist with writings appearing in The Atlantic, Science, The Washington Post, and many other esteemed publications. Ben holds a Master's of Environmental Management from the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Beavers truly are ecosystem engineers, capable of creating a series of habitats just by living their semi-aquatic lives. But did you know that not all beavers build dams and lodges? And in order to spend so much time in water, they have some amazing adaptations, such as a second set of lips behind their teeth that act like a valve sealing off water. And this is just the tip of the beaver lodge, so to speak. Ben tells us so many great facts about beavers and their ecology that I'm sure you'll walk away with an expanded respect for these animals. Ben tells us why beavers are perhaps the quintessential keystone species, creating a disproportionate impact on the land. For example, beavers may actually help salmon populations, reduce and slow wildfires, recharge groundwater supplies, and much more. They create ponds, dig creek channels, and trigger ecological succession. We also discuss how beavers fit into the classic Yellowstone trophic cascade narrative. Maybe I could have had a shorter interview if I just asked Ben what beavers don't do. So without further delay, Ben Goldfarb. All right, Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Michael. I'm super excited to talk to you. I have known about your book and finally knowing this interview was coming up, had a chance to actually read a little bit of it. And uh, so many interesting things in the world of beavers that I'm looking to get into today. But before we get there, can you, a little bit of background, can you tell me where you grew up and how you got interested in nature? Sure. I grew up in New York State and in Westchester County, and I was you know, fortunate to have parents who, who cared about that sort of thing, who took me to the Catskills and the Adirondacks and the White Mountains in New Hampshire. You know, I just grew up kind of around nature and the outdoors and always loved to hike and fish and camp and just kind of gravitate to that. In college, I was in English major uh, with kind of a creative writing concentration. So I, I wrote mostly fiction, but always knew that I was going to return to the natural world in, in some capacity. So, you know, being a, an environmental journalist is a, a perfect marriage of my passion for nature and wildlife with my interest in writing. So you said that you always knew you would come back to nature at some point. Was there a, a pivotal moment or uh, a point in time where that really became clear to you? Or was it really just this calling that you kind of felt all throughout your childhood and educational life? Yeah, you know, I think at a one pivotal moment, I was, I was in college. I, and it, so my, my junior year of college, I did the study abroad program where I, I went to a kind of a tropical field ecology station in, in Australia for a semester. Uh, and, you know, I was, I was an English major. I know, you know, I really had no science skills. So I kind of had to talk my way into the program. But then once I was there, I mean, that was really my my first exposure to field biology and, and ecology. And we did this bat project, um, which basically involved live capturing bats and, you know, putting these little, um, it was kind of a, a funny project. We put these little glow sticks on their backs using biodegradable glue that, that sloughed off after a few hours. And we could track their little glow sticks through the forest and basically determine what sorts of habitats they were using in these very fragmented tropical forests in, in Australia. But I remember the first time that we caught the first bat that we caught, you know, holding this, this little sort of warm, vibrating, delicate life in my hands. It was just an unbelievably powerful uh, emotional experience to me. And, and, you know, I think in that moment, I, I knew that I needed to work in wildlife conservation in, in some capacity. So that was just a really powerful experience, which was just being, being around bats uh, in this sort of visceral, tactile way. That's also interesting because when you started by saying it was Australia, I was thinking of some of the charismatic fauna that you might find in Australia as being the hook. I thought that's where you were going to go, but but bats you can you can find in a lot of places. You can, but you know, but here, of course, you know, you can't really 
it's harder to handle our bats without rabies shots. But there, I guess, you know, they, they don't have rabies, so you can more fearlessly handle them, I guess. But, you know, but, but certainly that, you know, that was, that was, you know, seeing the wallabies and kangaroos and patamelons and wombats, that was a big part of it too, for sure. Yeah, it's just an amazing place. And the other direction I thought you were going to go, there's this bat in Australia that they call the flying fox, right. which is just huge. And, and I thought maybe that's what you said you were tracking, which would be quite a different experience, I think, than holding a little bat in your hand. Yeah, these are micro bats, little echolocating you know, insectivorous yeah. bats that we are dealing with. But we did we did actually volunteer at a, at a, a flying fox hospital as well, where you know, they were caring for for orphan flying foxes. So that was that was definitely you know being around flying foxes and bottle feeding them. Uh, and, you know that was definitely part of the experience too, for sure. Quite an experience. So then, what led you to beavers? The topic of today. Yeah. So in my 20s, I had had worked as an environmental journalist. I'd I'd been a correspondent for a magazine called High Country News, and I was living in Seattle and uh, just looking for things to write about, stories to cover. And somebody sent me a a flyer for a a beaver workshop. And, you know, I wasn't totally sure what a a beaver workshop was or what it entailed, but, you know, I knew I had to go. Again, I had grown up going to the Adirondacks and the Catskill. I mean, these are are really beavery places. The Adirondacks is one of the densest beaver populations in in the lower 48. And, you know, I I had grown up canoeing on lakes at night and hearing them tail slap. I remember fishing on the, actually the Beaver Kill River in, in, uh, in the Catskills once and having a beaver swim practically between my legs uh, as I was fishing. So I always loved these animals and, you know, had been around them and was interested in writing a story about them. So I I went to this beaver workshop uh, outside of Seattle. It was just incredibly inspiring. I mean, there's just one scientist after another, ecologists and fish biologists and hydrologists and fluvial geomorphologists, you know, all of these ologists coming up one by one and basically saying their piece about why beavers are so fundamental to ecological restoration, why they're so important, you know, and that day, my understanding of beavers changed from, oh, this is, you know, kind of a a cute, fun rodent to, holy crap, this is really one of the primary movers and shakers of North American ecosystems and is is really uh, essential if we're going to solve a lot of the environmental problems that we've stuck ourselves in. So it was, you know, it was really that day that just kind of opened my eyes to the, the power of this animal. That reminds me of, there's a term in behavioral science, the illusion of explanatory depth, where you're familiar with something, and as a result, kind of superficially, you think you know about it. And it seems like, for me anyway, in nature, there's a lot of things that we're familiar with, whether it's monarchs or beavers or or bears or whatever. But when you start digging into it, you find out, wow, there's so much more to this story that we didn't even know about. And it sounds like that's a little bit what happened for you. Yeah, that's that's a great that's the illusion of explanatory depth. I've never heard of that term before, but that that's exactly right. I and mean, you know, I think that we, as you say, we have that about a lot of common creatures. And you know, I think that most people feel that way about beavers to some extent. You know, they're a pretty familiar animal to us, and, and we take them for granted. I, I, a bit of a tangent, but so one chapter of this book is is set in England and Scotland, where beavers have been reintroduced after an absence of many, many hundreds of years. And they were totally extinct there. And, you know, while I was in England, I, I went on this beaver walk with a farmer who had reintroduced beavers to his land, Chris Jones. You know, he brought along 30 or so people with him, and the beavers came out and were very obliging and, you know, were doing their thing. And people literally had tears in their eyes because for them, beavers were this almost mythical creature, you know, this giant rodent with a paddle tail that, that builds dams. I mean, it was like seeing the Loch Ness monster for them in some ways. It was just this, this kind of integral piece of their native fauna that had returned after being gone for centuries. And it was really powerful and, and emotional. And that, that made me realize how, how lucky we are to have these animals on our landscapes and, you know, how we don't realize how, how lucky we are because we do take them for granted. Maybe we could talk a little bit about what defines a beaver. You mentioned it's a rodent. And I know there's a couple other species that superficially look like beavers, like nutrias or muskrats. So how do they all fit together? What differentiates a beaver from some of these other large rodents? Yeah, you're right. So those are all, uh, you know, semi-aquatic rodents. Uh, I mean, beavers are, are quite a bit larger than muskrat or, or nutria. You know, I mean, beavers are really, they're really hefty animals. I think that often we see them, we just see their heads, you know, so we don't, it's, it's like seeing an iceberg, you know, you don't see the submerged mass below the water. But, you know, a typical adult beaver is you know, usually 40 to 50 pounds. So these are really big animals. And I don't know what a muskrat weighs, but, you know, five to 10 pounds at, at most. So they're much bigger. They are all, all related, as you say. But I mean, of course, beavers have this, you know, this really 
unique behavioral adaptation, which is, of course, that they cut down trees and they build dams and, and nothing else in the animal kingdom does anything like that. So, so superficially, um, you know, they are similar. You know, and, and often it's funny, there have definitely been some papers and presentations and even books that had that were ostensibly about beavers, but actually had pictures of nutria. They do look superficially similar. Nutria have these kind of these long white whiskers. That's kind of the, the way you differentiate them. So they, you know, so they do, they do look very similar, but again, you know, nothing, nothing does what beavers do. Got it. So the behaviors of the beaver, in addition to its size are what casually would differentiate them. Uh, and the, and the, t- the tail, too, is another important thing to point out, of course. People often send me videos of beavers they think they've seen and they're muskrats. You know, and muskrats have, and the way you can tell the difference is, you know, muskrats have these little, you know, kind of whippy rat tails, essentially, that when you see them swimming, you see the tails kind of winding side to side behind the muskrat. Whereas beavers, you know, have these, of course, their iconic feature is their giant paddle-like scaly tail, which, again, nothing really has that. And beavers don't really swim with their tail. You know, they're primarily swimming with their webbed hind feet. So if you see an animal that's, you know, that's clearly using its tail to swim, that's a muskrat. I want to ask a little bit about the ecological adaptations, the physical adaptations of a beaver that allow them to be this master of the semi-aquatic environment. But maybe starting off, though, you mentioned the tail, the kind of the scaly tail. Why do they have that kind of shape and size of a tail? Yeah, it's a good it's a good question. I mean, the tail, you know, I'm not really sure how it evolves originally. I mean, the tail, you know, does serve a lot of different important functions. It's a fat storage device, which to me that seems like a plausible explanation is for how it evolved was it was initially as this place to basically put your fat. So beavers, just as a bear, you know, puts on fat for the winter, beavers actually their tails get kind of fatter in the fall and then they kind of draw that fat down throughout the winter so that that might have been its initial function they do use it as a as a rudder while they swim so it's got some steering functions it's a kickstand out on land it's also an, an alarm system anybody who spent a lot of time around beaver ponds has probably heard a tail slap right where beavers whack their tail on the surface of the water uh, and that's basically them warning other beavers about the, the presence of a potential predator. So the tail is doing all kinds of different things. And, and in the tail, there's kind of one central bone, that's it, down the middle of the tail. The substance of the tail is fat. It's kind of this white, gooey stuff. Uh, and then the scaly part, the outer black layer, is keratin. They know the same stuff in our fingernails. You mentioned that they use it kind of like a kickstand on land. Is that to help, say, get leverage when they're trying to chew on a tree or take down a branch or something like that? Yeah, exactly. That's kind of propping themselves up. And the tail is, you know, I mean, at the base of the tail are some really, really powerful muscles. The tail is really a strong uh, appendage. Yeah, the visualization that came to mind, for some reason, I don't know, is, is, is that of a woodpecker who also kind of uses their tail to get leverage against a tree to, you know, to, to peck against that tree. Right. That's a good, that's a good analogy. Yeah. I'll have, to, I'll have to watch some videos of, of woodpeckers and beavers side by side. That, that's a good comparison. So what other adaptations do they have for this uh, semi-aquatic life <laughs> that they live? They've got a second set of eyelids, transparent eyelids called nictitating membranes, which are basically goggles underwater. They've also got a second set of lips, kind of these fur-lined inner lips, which they can close behind their front teeth like a valve. So they can chew and drag branches underwater without getting, without drowning. That's a, a pretty important function and a really cool adaptation, I think, that very few people know about. They've also got these wonderful, you know, fur coats, essentially, these pelts, which were ultimately their downfall. But they've got one of the densest pelts in the animal kingdom. They've got, you know, really two layers of hair, kind of the, you know, the coarse outer guard hairs. And then they've got the under fur, what trappers used to call the, the beaver wool. Those two layers of hair just keep them you know, totally uh, watertight and, and warm uh, in some, some very cold water. So are these adaptations, are they consistent between the North American beavers and the Eurasian beavers? Yeah, they are. So as, as you said, even there are, are two species of beavers. You know, historically, beavers were this very diverse lineage. You know, there were beavers, there were these kind of these giant Black bear-sized beavers, castoroides. There were little prairie dog-like beavers that dug these kind of elaborate 
helical spiral burrows. So beavers were historically this very diverse lineage, and now they're just two species, you know, the, the, the Eurasian and the North American. I mean, morphologically, they're, they're very, very similar. I can't really tell them apart at a glance. Certainly, I, I have met some European biologists who can instantly differentiate them visually, but they're very similar, very similar animals. And, they, you know, they do similar things to the, to the landscape. They have different numbers of chromosomes, so they can't, they can't interbreed. Mm. Uh, they don't hybridize but they're sort of functionally the same. So I was poking around a little bit on iNaturalist to see where where beavers are generally observed. And you know, I have an old field guide. I think it's a Peterson field guide to mammals from probably 15 or 20 years ago. And when I looked at the range map of the American beaver, there were some noticeable gaps in Southern California, for example. Yeah. And I was really happy to see when I pulled up iNaturalist that, that there are observations from Southern California. And in fact, it looks like pretty much every state in the United States has observations. So can you tell me a little bit about their current status? It seems like their range is expanding. Hey, nature enthusiast, do you want to be part of something bigger? Well, we're building a movement at Jumpstart Nature, and we've just added some new volunteers to help with our podcast and website. But this means our costs are going up too. I need to purchase software licenses to give them access to the production tools we use. For example, one media editing license costs $21 a month. And this is where you come in. Please consider supporting our mission by contributing to Jumpstart Nature through our Patreon or direct contributions, or even purchasing some logo merch. Check out all these options at jumpstartnature.com donate, also linked in the show notes. Not ready to make a financial contribution? Then please share this episode with three friends. Sharing what we do is actually one of the very best ways you can help us. Thank you all for your continued support. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is after, you know, it, it, of course, it contracted during the industrial fur trade in the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries. Beavers were historically found everywhere from northern Mexico to the tundra line in the Arctic. So this, this was a, a historically ubiquitous species that occurred in every state besides Hawaii and throughout most of Canada. And we can get into the into the fur trade later if you'd like, but they're basically rendered functionally extirpated. And, you know, certainly in the, in the lower 48, they did kind of hang on in Canada, but, you know, they were basically gone from the United States. But since the early 20th century, they, they have been increasing their range again and, and, uh, and recolonizing, uh, you know, a lot of the places they, they were historically native to, including California, you know, which is the place that they would have been throughout Southern California when they were wiped out. Of course, that's kind of a hard place to return to. It's just so densely settled. So it's a place with not a lot of hydrologic connectivity at this point. You know, you've got the, the Mojave Desert, so it's a hard place for a beaver to disperse from a neighboring state into California. So getting beavers back throughout California has been a struggle for sure. But, you know, but we, we are getting there. So I think that the thing that I would highlight about the beaver's current status, you know, is that if you look at a continental range map, it does look like they're everywhere, right? I mean, they're, you know, they're found in every state, but they're in very few of the watersheds they used to be in, right? Historically, you would have found a beaver in every river, lake, creek, wetland on the continent or close to it. And now it certainly depends on, on where you are. But, you know, here in Washington state where I live, we're probably at 20% of our historic beaver occupancy, something like that. So a very broad scale, they've returned to the whole continent, but we're still missing them at a finer watershed scale, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's probably a better measure, I would suspect. And when we a little bit later, we'll probably get into some of the ecology and benefits and challenges that beavers present. You alluded to the fact that their numbers were reduced dramatically and, and they're on the increase at the moment. Yeah, you know, Some animals can bounce back really fast because their reproductive rates are very high. What's the lifespan and what does the reproductive cycle for a beaver look like? A typical beaver lifespan in the wild, 12 would be a, a pretty old beaver. I think the oldest beaver uh, in captivity that I'm aware of is was 19. You know, they've got this, this really kind of interesting life history where, you know, a typical beaver colony or a family is two to as many as eight or 10 beavers. And that's generally the mating male and female who are typically, but not always monogamous. They mate for life. And then you usually got 
three kind of year classes of offspring all cohabitating in the lodge in the kind of the, the basic beaver housing unit. Uh, so you've got, you know, the newborn kits, the baby beavers who were born in the spring, the one-year-olds and the two-year-olds. And then during their second year, you know, those two-year-olds will disperse out uh, and go look for their own territory. They are good at increasing their own numbers and, and distribution, you know, which allowed them to, to recover pretty quickly. Certainly not like a you know, field mouse or something, but, you know, they're having litters of, you know, up to eight, eight or so kits. Of course, you know, most of those aren't surviving, but you, you at least got fairly high reproductive potential and they're dispersing widely, right? So you've got, you know, individual beavers, you know, those two-year-old teenage beavers, they can go many miles looking for suitable habitat. So, you know, they kind of increase their range quickly. Of course, the other critical thing is that by building dams and creating ponds, they're basically engineering their own habitat, right? That, you know, they, they can create conditions suitable for their survival and, and flourishing. So all, you know, all of that allowed them to increase their numbers pretty quickly once we stopped, you know, deliberately exterminating them. So when they disperse, are they primarily dispersing through the connectivity of existing watersheds or do you ever actually see beavers disperse over land? They do occasionally go over land, but land is not where a beaver wants to be, obviously. A beaver on, on land is going to get devoured instantly by a, you know, not instantly, but, but you know, but <laughs> quickly by a cougar or a bear or a coyote, right? Beavers want to be in, in water, of course. So, they're, so they're, they are generally using the, the stream corridor to disperse, but, you know, they're very territorial animals. They really don't tolerate unrelated beavers in their territories. So, you know, if you're a, a two-year-old dispersing beaver in a, a densely inhabited area, you know, you might have to go many miles looking for a, an available section of stream. And I admit, I haven't really properly investigated this, but we had some beavers show up here in the South Bay, in the San Francisco Bay, um, kind of in not quite downtown San Jose, but nearby, not too far away. And it's always been a question in my mind, where did they come from? How did they get there? And I guess the default assumption would be from somewhere upstream. Yeah, although it's certainly possible that, that they, they crossed saltwater. They do that as well. That's, of course, you know, again, that's not where a beaver wants to be in the ocean. But there are lots and lots of stories of, of beavers sort of dispersing between river mouths using the ocean. And that's actually, the, you know, I, I wrote an interesting article a couple of years ago, at least I thought it was interesting, about saltwater beavers. And here in Washington, there's been this interesting phenomenon where, uh, you know, a number of, I talked to a veterinarian who'd had a handful of beavers found on beaches in the greater Puget Sound area, sort of sick with salt toxicity um, that had clearly, you know, they clearly had been out at sea dispersing from river to river using Puget Sound. That's a, a, a natural behavior as, as far as we know, but they're clearly not particularly well suited to being in the ocean because they are all getting sick and in many cases dying. I guess that beaver could have swum across the, the San Francisco Bay. It's, you know, certainly a, you know, a behavior that they do exhibit at times, even if being at sea for too long is clearly uh, detrimental to their health. I wouldn't have even thought to ask that question because I just assume that saltwater would be off limits. And so that's amazing to hear. Obviously, as you say, it, they do have their limits in terms of how long they can survive based on the the sick beavers that were found. So another obvious topic I would like to delve into is that of their dams. You know, yeah. beavers have this sort of mythical reputation of being great engineers. And then there's also the saying, busy as a beaver. And you just conjures up this image of this, you know, cartoonish image maybe of a beaver with blueprints designing up their habitat and going out and building it, working on it nonstop. So can you tell me a little bit about these creations of theirs, the dams, how are they constructed? What do they look like? The first important thing to remember is, just, is why they built dams. And that's because, again, as, you know, as we talked about, they're these semi-aquatic animals, you know, they're on land, they're prey for all kinds of large carnivores. And, and by building that dam and creating a, a nice deep pool, um, you know, they're basically expanding the extent of their own habitat, right? They're creating their own shelter where they can be safe from wolves and, and cougars and, and bears. So, you know, so the, the kind of the corollary to that is, is an important thing to remember is not all beavers build dams, or at least, you know, beavers don't build dams in all circumstances, right? If they're living in a big river or a lake, the water is already plenty deep enough for them, right? There's plenty of available habitat and shelter, so they don't need to build a dam. I think people often say they have this, as you say, cartoonish idea of the beaver is this like, this workaholic, you know, this incessantly 
busy animal. But beavers, you know, again, I think the beavers are probably happier not having to build dams, right? They're probably content living in the Colorado River, some big, uh, big impoundment where, you know, they don't need to go to all of that trouble. They end up building dams when they're on these kind of smaller skinnier streams where they basically, you know, need a deep impoundment to survive. So I think that's, a, that's one important thing to remember is that, you know, they're totally happy just, you know, living in a, a lake or a riverbank somewhere and not building dams at all, which also makes them kind of invisible to people sometimes too. I think people say, oh, well, you know, I don't see any beaver dams. There are no beavers, you know, on this stretch of river, but they're probably living very happily and inconspicuously in the riverbank. Anyway, getting to your actual question, what do these dams look like and, and how do they build them? So there really is no typical beaver dam. You know, they, they come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. You see dams that are, you know, three feet long and one foot high and span this little tiny channel. And then in other places where the hydrology and the kind of the situation calls for it, I've seen dams that are a thousand feet long and 15 feet high and just these epic constructions that, that would impress the Army Corps of Engineers, you know. It's really all about what the situation calls for for beavers. You know, a typical beaver colony is building kind of one primary dam to create the, the main impoundment, uh, the main pond, and, you know, and then there are often lots of smaller secondary dams moving upstream, just pushing that water further upstream in this kind of, you know, almost stair-step, terrace-like pattern. They're also really prolific canal diggers. So, you know, you'll you often see them kind of dig a canal off into the forest and then build a little dam to keep water in that canal. Um, so, you know, a single colony of beavers might be building 10 to 15 dams in some cases of, of all kinds of different uh, shapes and sizes. Those canals that they build, is that to provide them safer access to food and resources? Or is there any theories behind that? Yeah, that's exactly it. They're building these canals up into the forest so they can swim upstream, cut down an, an aspen tree, and then float it back down the canal without you know having to uh, expose themselves to predation. And they are vegetarians, correct? Yeah, they're totally, totally herbivorous. They're really eating the, the cambium, the kind of the inner bark off of trees. And, you know, so they're, they're really efficient animals. The trees they cut down are both a food source and a, a construction material. I think that's a, you know, a level of, of efficiency that we could all uh, aspire to. I'm just laughing at myself. I, I called them vegetarians, but yeah, <laughs> herbivorous is, is probably a little more accurate. <laughs> right, I guess vegetarian, that kind of vegetarian kind of implies a choice that they're making. This may be totally off base as well, but I, I, I also have this imprint in my head of like a cross section of a beaver dam. And there's there's sort of like a lodge above water level within that. Is that accurate or, or where do they spend their time when they're not in the water? Yeah. The lodge and the dam are really two separate structures, right? The lodge is, is, you know, as you say, sort of this chamber in which they live. And, you know, and that can take a few different forms. The kind of the, the iconic classic picture that I think we think of when we, you know, picture a beaver lodge is, is sort of like this, you know, little volcanic island in the middle of the pond that has a bunch of underwater tunnels leading up into it. And obviously, by being out in the pond, you know, is kind of a, a, an added safety element, essentially, right? Um, but, you know, they, they will also construct you know, what are known as bank lodges. So they'll, they'll kind of burrow into the bank and then they'll put a bunch of sticks on top of that. So, that, so the lodge is sort of where they're living. And then the dam is kind of a, a, an independent freestanding structure whose function, again, is to create that nice deep pool and to keep the lodge entrances underwater. That's another really important thing about the, the dam as well, is that, you know, there are all of these, right, these underwater tunnels that lead up into the lodge. And if the dam breaks and that pond level drops, those lodge entrances get exposed. And then, you know, then a coyote could get up in there. So the lodge and the dam are, you know, they're different structures, but they are working together to create kind of this whole system of shelter. So, you know, it's sort of like a castle and a moat, you know, where the, the lodge is the castle and then the dam creates the moat around the castle. Sure. I, I, I suspected that there was an obvious answer to that question. So thank you for clarifying. And it also explains then in the case of beavers who live in the lake, how they can get away without building a dam. They're still building a lodge of some sort, whether it's in the lake or you said they could also do it on the bank. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, they'll very happily uh, just right burrow it up into the bank, and you know, again, you mean you, you know, you, you might have no idea they're even there in that instance. Yeah, I also have flashbacks to some hikes around lakes where I've seen evidence of beavers chewing on trees. Yeah, but no evidence of any sort of lodge or 
any other structure. So you're connecting the dots for me as you explain some of these basics. <laughs> Good. Yeah. It's, it's a study a few, a few, a few years ago, you know, we always take our, my wife and I take our friends beaver watching and that's, that's actually been like a kind of a fun privilege is that, you know, we, I, I've, I've shown many people their first beaver, which is always an exciting emotional experience. But I, I remember a, a couple of years ago, we were, we were at this pond beaver watching and some friends of ours, you know, were there with their, their five-year-old daughter. And, uh, you know, we were standing on the bank and suddenly the bank basically just crumbled around her because we were on top of an old beaver burrow into the bank and there was no soil beneath us essentially. And this, you know, this poor little girl just kind of like tumbled into the pond as the bank caved beneath her. And then her father very heroically jumped into the pond fully clothed and, uh, and hauled her out. So that was a, you know, so that, that was an instance of, right, that kind of inconspicuous bank lodge causing problems. Ooh, wow. That's a uh... Unexpected risk <laughs> that beavers pose. I think a common consideration when the public thinks about beavers is the habitat that they create. And maybe all the public doesn't think this way, but at least people like me, <laughs> I, I think this way. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about the benefits of the habitat that they create just through their normal daily lives? Yeah, I mean, of course, beavers are by building the dam, they're creating their own their own habitat. But you know, there are all these collateral beneficiaries too. You know, we I mean, we know that especially in the American West, right? Water is life, and you know, any animal that's that's creating and expanding water is is really important. You're a, a birder, of course, so you know you understand. If you if you want to if you want to see a you know a crap load of birds, where do you go? You go to a wetland most of the time. So I mean, so all kinds of birds, you know, I mean, and not just waterfowl and wading birds, but you know, but of course, songbirds are, are uh, attracted to wetlands and beaver. Con- complexes uh, as well. You know, lots of great studies showing increased warbler densities and flycatchers, all kinds of birds around beaver ponds, all kinds of semi-aquatic mammals, you know, muskrat, mink, uh, river otter, moose, you know, they're all hanging out around beaver complexes. Amphibians, they're amphibians like the boreal toad that are basically beaver pond obligates that breed almost exclusively in in beaver ponds and in much of their range. And then the, the really big habitat connection here in the Northwest where I live is beavers and fish, beavers and, and salmonids, especially, you know, because beavers are, beavers are creating these kind of wonderful slow water refuges for, for baby salmon and trout, right? If you're a little coho salmon, you know, the length of a finger, you know, you don't want to live in the, the main stem river. You're just going to get blown downstream, right? You want to live in a deep pool or a side channel or a meander or an eddy. You know, you want some kind of brushy cover from, from kingfishers and herons. You want that kind of complex, slow habitat that beavers create. So there are, you know, just a million studies linking beavers to salmon production. And here in Washington, salmon are such a, a, a kind of a, a management focus, right? There's so much money and political effort around restoring salmon that's really galvanized this kind of concomitant interest in, in beavers and, you know, and, and the notion of beavers as this salmon restoration tool is an increasingly uh, popular one. Yeah, I had an interesting discussion on a BioBlitz a while ago on the creek that has the beavers here in the Bay Area, and we were talking about the beavers and also the fact that there are some salmon that that will spawn in this creek, and somebody uh, who I think was just out there for the experience, they weren't necessarily a naturalist, they, they asked the question, well, wait, I thought that dams were bad for salmon. It keeps them from going upstream, so that's a really good point that... This is the nuance of the natural world as opposed to the way that humans then end up <laughs> impacting these waterways. Yeah, fortunately, that objection is decreasing, but you still hear that all the, all the time, right? We're trying, to, we're trying to take dams out of streams, not put more dams into streams. But, you know, I mean, I think a couple of things to remember. I mean, first, obviously, these two animals, beavers and salmon, have been evolving together for for millions of years right my favorite bumper sticker is uh, is beavers taught salmon to jump fish just have so many ways of getting around beaver dams you know beaver dams unlike a giant concrete wall you know beaver dams are not perfect seals you know and i've seen fish basically wriggling through them through the woody structure fish can jump them you know oftentimes salmon are, are migrating during periods of high flow when you know when there's water going over the top of the dam or, or around a beaver dam you know, the beavers are creating these kind of complex channels where, you know, often you know, I mean, they're giving fish multiple options to go upstream. There have been studies documenting individual steelhead, you know, rainbow trout that kind of go to the ocean like a salmon and then come back to spawn. Individual steelhead 
passing more than 200 beaver dams on their way to spawn. So, you know, clearly fish have no trouble whatsoever with beaver dams the vast majority of the time. Yeah, it's pretty cool to think about. How about other impacts in terms of, say, groundwater recharge or wildfire mitigation? And, and, and on that latter point, I know one of the challenges we have in with wildfire is that, that often forests are replanted in a very homogenous way. Mm. Uh, so like I'm just envisioning that having beavers in that habitat kind of helps break up the landscape a little bit and, and perhaps make it a little, little more resilient. That's absolutely true. Yeah. So that's a, a great point. I think that's an important thing too. Beavers are creating so many different habitat types, right? A, a beaver complex is, is kind of inherently cyclical in ways, right? As you said, you know, they, they show up, you know, they, they take a stream, they turn it into a deep pond, you know, over, over time that pond accretes sediment and kind of begins to fill in, you know, maybe the beavers move on for whatever reason, that pond turns into kind of a, a wetland, then it turns into a wet meadow, then it turns into a first generation forest, you know, with a stream going through it again, and then, you know, the beavers show up again and, and uh, kind of start the process over again. Yeah. You know, at, Beaver each, induced secession, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, at each stage in that successional cycle, you know, it's it's providing a different habitat type for a different group of organisms from fish to amphibians to ungulates, you know, in the wet meadow stage or kind of the forest stage and then back again. So anyway, so, so I think that's an important point too, is that beaver complexes are, are inherently multiple habitats over the course of their, their life cycle. I mean, as for the, the wildfire component, that's absolutely true. You know, and that was something that I think the beaver community intuitively or anecdotally knew for a long time that, of course, as Joe Wheaton, a great beaver guy in Utah, is fond of saying, water doesn't burn, right? And, and beavers, by expanding the extent of water, were creating these fire refugia or fire breaks. And, you know, there were lots of anecdotal observations. And then, fortunately, you know, just last year, a, a wonderful... I don't know what she calls herself, an, a, a hydrologist, an eco-hydrologist, but a great beaver scientist named uh, Emily Fairfax, who's based in California now, published, you know, what was really the first peer-reviewed paper about beavers and wildfire. And, and basically, you know, what she found was that by hydrating the soil and by creating kind of lusher, greener plants, beavers were creating these, these kind of fireproof spots on the landscape, right? You know, you can sort of picture brown dry, brittle brush is, you know, just much more flammable than really lush green vegetation. And beavers, you know, beavers by recharging the, the, the groundwater and hydrating soils, you know, are creating these lush spots in the landscape that really don't burn, you know, and, and those spots have a twofold function. I mean, first, they're, in some cases, they're fire breaks, right? So Emily found spots where a fire will burn to a, a beaver pond or wetland and then stop in its tracks. You know, even when they're not acting as full fire breaks, they're acting as fire refugia, right? So there are these kind of green, lush places where animals can retreat during the wildfire, survive the fire, and then, you know, repopulate the landscape afterwards, you know? So you can sort of imagine this being operationalized in a human context, too. You can imagine a community in California kind of armoring itself from fire by using beaver wetlands as kind of this, this buffer perimeter area. So I think Emily's research has lots of really exciting applications. Yeah, I'll have to find that and link to it in the show notes. I hadn't seen yeah. that. So yeah, that sounds really fascinating. And you're right. I, I just have this sort of like Google satellite view of a post-burned area and seeing little dots of vegetation where maybe a, a beaver habitat had been. And it's it's a foothold for all those plants too, to start to regain their spread within the landscape. Yeah. I've been talking, I've been talking to, to a lot of, not a lot, but some fire ecologists lately. I've been, you know, writing, writing about wildfire a little bit over the last couple of years. It's because it's become just increasingly uh, prominent in our lives, you know, and the, and the concept that I keep hearing is, is that just the notion of pyrodiversity, the idea that you, you want different intensities of fire on the, on the landscape from the really intense stand clearing fires to the, the much sort of lighter, cooler fires that don't burn as, as intensely, you know, and you want those kind of green spots as well. You want this kind of patchwork matrix of green and black, you know, that's what kind of good, healthy fire looks like. Beavers create that, you know, they create these green spots on the landscape. And so I, th I think there's a lot of potential for collaboration between beaver people and, and, uh, and fire people as we kind of pursue this idea of pyrodiversity and habitat complexity on the landscape. And I suppose I should have brought this topic up 
earlier in the discussion, but I, I know that beavers are sometimes characterized because of all of these impacts, the outsized impact they have as a keystone species. Can you tell me what a keystone species is and any other ways that you see beavers kind of contributing to that label? Yeah, I mean, to me, beavers are kind of the, the quintessential keystone species, you know, so so keystone species, you can sort of picture, so in architecture, the keystone is the top block in a stone arch, right, That and that block is just supporting a disproportionate amount of weight, and if you pull that block out, the whole arch crumbles. And, you know, we know that, of course, in, in ecology and every every species has its niche, everything is hitched to everything else in the universe, as, as John Muir put it. But I think some species are, are hitched more than other species. Uh, you know, salmon are, of course, kind of a, a classic keystone species in the way that they cycle nutrients from the ocean to terrestrial systems. Apex predators like wolves are, you know, are keystone species and that they're kind of mediating these top-down trophic interactions. Beavers, as much or, or more so than any other animal, you know, are playing this kind of critical keystone function where, again, you know, they're just building this really rare and incredibly productive habitat type that just wouldn't wouldn't exist without them. I remember seeing a, a study in uh, on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington in, in one watershed basically found that the loss of beavers from this river was, was associated with a, a 97% decline in the available juvenile coho salmon habitat. So once you wiped out beavers, just 3% of the habitat for, for salmon was left. If that's not a keystone species, you know, I don't know, I don't know what it is. So there's the, the famous trophic cascade of the reintroduction of the wolves in Yellowstone. And right. I don't know if this is true or not, but I, I am thinking about how that played out. And given that I can think as the story goes, the wolves were reintroduced and it forced the elk to move away from the easy foraging grounds that they used to stay on, which allowed vegetation to come back. Were beavers benefited by that? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, you know, one chapter of the book is is a, basically about Yellowstone. And you kind of summarized perfectly the, the standard conception of what happened there. I think that the, the reality is more complex than that. Not surprisingly, it's, it's ecology, right? Everything, everything is kind of complex. I think that, you know, the first thing to remember is that, you know, beavers in Yellowstone were once just unbelievably prolific, you know, and a, and a lot of those in the, the northern range, you know, the northern part of Yellowstone, a lot of those drainages that are today kind of these little, you know, incised streams are basically underwater. You know, you just, you see old pictures of what the park looked like and you just can't believe the extent of the the ponds and wetlands, you know, and, and today, I mean, the northern range is a pretty arid place. Well, you know, what everybody agrees upon is that, you know, when wolves were exterminated by the park service, as they were in, you know, in the early 20th century, that created a landscape where beavers could not survive, right? You, you know, because elk proliferated, elk just devoured all the vegetation, uh, and there wasn't really much much left for the beavers, and beavers basically vanished. So, you know, I, th I think that's broadly agreed upon. I think the question that is is sort of hotly debated now among ecologists is, you know, what happened when the wolves came back? Because, you know, certainly, I mean, there are streams where you see the dynamic that you described, where the wolves showed up. They kind of, you know, cleared the elk out a little bit, the vegetation regenerated, the beavers could kind of reestablish and, uh, and do pretty well. So in some streams that happened, but then, you know, in other streams, beavers haven't really recovered. And, you know, I, I think that, I mean, one of the great challenges of beaver restoration is that when you lose beavers, the landscape changes in ways that makes it hard for them to return, right? So if you picture a stream, a healthy beaver-rich stream where, with its kind of historic population of beavers, it's full of beaver dams, right? And all of those beaver dams are basically acting like speed bumps. They're slowing the water down. They're pushing the water out laterally onto the floodplain. You know, they're kind of hydrating these wonderful, you know, wet meadows and wetlands. But when you lose all of those beaver built speed bumps, there's nothing checking the velocity of the water. So what you often get is this really dramatic erosion or incision where the stream just down cuts to bedrock and then gets really locked within its channel, right? So it cuts down 10 or 15 feet in some cases, and it becomes, it, you know, basically turns the stream into a fire hose, right? Instead of spreading out of the floodplain, the stream is just locked within its banks. Uh, and that's a really hard situation for a beaver to live, right? It's hard to build a dam because the flow is so concentrated, it just blows the stream out. There's really nothing for the beaver to flood, to impound, because the stream and the floodplain have gotten so disconnected. I think that in many of the streams in Yellowstone, that's basically what happened. You know, when we lost beavers, it became 
really hard for beavers to reestablish there. And even the return of wolves hasn't really facilitated that yet. And, you know, it might take a couple hundred years potentially in some of these systems that were historically very degraded. But we really need beavers back in Yellowstone because, again, the system was such a, a lush rich pond and wetland driven system. I think that's what the debate is now in in Yellowstone in some ways is how heavy handed do we want to be? We already reintroduced wolves and that's helping in some cases, but there are other streams that, you know, are not going to be fully restored by beavers without some more kind of heavy handed management intervention. So Yellowstone is just a really complicated situation, but, you know, I think what it does show is that you know, wolves and beavers are, are, at least they can be in some cases, kind of these partners in restoration where in some ways, I think that people talk about wolves as being these ecological saviors, because as you say, you know, they, they reduce ungulate browsing and allow vegetation to recover. But in some ways, I think that the most important thing that wolves are doing is actually making it possible for the beavers to return by creating a food and building source for them. So, you know, beavers, yeah, wolves and beavers really go uh, hand in hand in a, a lot of ways. That's fascinating to think about. And it's another reminder when we're looking at different ecological scenarios and there's some species under threat or potentially about to be extirpated. Yeah, this is an example of what could happen. To your point, it could be a couple hundred years before these streams are able to return to their more natural meandering status that then enables the next phase of recovery. It's hard to think in those timescales sometimes. What other conservation challenges do beavers have today? Because, I mean, in general, they're on the upswing, directionally looking good, but I know all is not great. So can you tell me a little bit about the, the broader perspective? I think the, the biggest conservation challenge they face is, is just our inability to coexist with them. Historically, you know, we wiped out beavers from the 1600s on because we coveted their pelts, right? They were this kind of this commercial commodity. They were a casualty of capitalism. You know, and today, beaver pelts are, are not particularly valuable anymore. The pelt market is really diminished, but we're still killing a lot of them. Uh, and the reason for that is, you know, is that we consider them a nuisance, essentially, right? Beavers, they build dams and road culverts and wash out roads. They, you know, they dam up irrigation ditches, cut down people's ornamental trees or, or what have you. Look, they're both Homo sapiens and, and Castor canadensis are, are animals that love to modify the landscape. When we try to modify the same landscapes, trouble usually ensues and, the, you know, the humans generally win, unfortunately. So we're still killing certainly many, many tens, if not hundreds of thousands of beavers every year for the crime of essentially doing what beavers do. And I think that's really limiting their ability to recover in many cases is that we've got these places that are basically like beaver black holes, as my friend, the, the filmmaker, Sarah Konigsberg has put it to me, places where these conflict areas where they're attracted to road culverts, right? If you're a beaver, the road bed is this kind of amazing potential dam and the culvert is the, the leak in the dam. They're trying to plug up that leak and they end up damming in the culvert. They get trapped out. That creates a vacancy sign for the next family of beavers. The next family gets shows up. They get trapped out at, you know, sort of ad infinitum. So we need to kind of plug up those beaver black holes, figure out ways of coexisting with these animals so that, so that we're not just drawing them into these kind of perpetually lethal conflict areas. We've moved beyond, for the most part, you know, seeing beavers as, as this kind of commodity and now we need to move beyond seeing them as a competitor or a, a nuisance. And I have heard that there are solutions to some of these problems, like the culvert problem, where you can run pipes from upstream of where they might dam to allow the water to continue to flow and, and prevent washouts and things like that. So I know there are solutions out there, but it sounds like to a lot of people, it's just easier to get rid of the beaver. Yeah, exactly. It's only what we've always done. You know, we, we, we've always killed animals. Why, why stop now? But as you, as you say, there are solutions, really effective solutions. The, the kind of the flow devices you're describing, you know, these pipe and fence systems are really, really effective. You know, you often get them called, called beaver deceivers. Oh, that's, a, that's kind of a specific model of flow device. But the idea for all of these systems is basically the same. You know, you're passing a pipe through the road culvert or through the beaver dam and just creating a leak, just trying to move water from the upstream side to the downstream side and just drop the level of that beaver caused flooding, you know, ideally to a, a point where both beavers and humans can tolerate it. 
that's really the goal. And there have been studies, you know, showing these things are 85 to 95% effective. Maybe they're not appropriate for every single situation, but, you know, there are certainly many thousands and thousands of places in North America where we're currently reflexively killing beavers, where we could be coexisting with them instead and, and really allowing them to reestablish in a lot of their former areas. It's funny, I think a lot of people think about beavers as being this animal that's like out there, you know, out, out, in, the, out in the wilderness, like a grizzly bear or a, a wolf or something. But they're incredibly resourceful, flexible animals that will very, very happily live in urban areas in close proximity to people if we, you know, if we let them. I mean, in the course of working on this book, I, I went to Logan, Utah, which is kind of this hotbed of beaver research and conservation activity, you know, and, and there they went to a spot where there's basically a beaver living in this tiny little wetland, basically in the parking lot of a Walmart. There, they put in one of these pipe systems to manage the water level. The local Walmart manager was totally on board with this. And they created this you know, amazing little two-acre pocket of habitat in this kind of other, and it, it was basically like a strip mall otherwise. So I think that as long as the kind of the political will or the social will to live with these animals exists, you know, there's really nowhere they can't theoretically be. And beaver deceiver, it reminded me of uh, a study I'd heard about, and I want to see if it's true or if it's been replicated, but uh, apparently some researcher had assembled some beavers and played the sound of water running through a speaker and the beavers dammed up the speaker. Is that is that actually true? That is actually true. Yeah, that was some Scandinavian guy who did that. And what he was trying to prove there, and you know, prove to some extent is that the dam building behavior is instinct rather than learned in the context of the colony. Because the, because those beavers who did that, those were young beavers who he had separated at birth from their parents, kind of cruelly maybe. So they had no dam building experience. And yet the dam building instinct was triggered by the sound of, of running water. But, you know, I think that what's important to remember too, is that when you observe a beaver colony, you know, you see the young beavers, they're, I mean, they're constantly following their older siblings and their parents. They're doing lots of mimicry behavior. So they're clearly, you know, they're learning something about how to build dams and lodges. I mean, they stay with their parents for two years for a reason. So maybe it's like humans and language, you know, that the linguistic instinct is sort of latent in all of us, but we have to learn the, the finer points of English. Maybe that's what being a beaver is like, but it's a, it's a much debated topic. I hadn't thought about it that way. And anyone who's played around in a stream, I think would recognize that the water conditions are always different and changing and the force of the flow, direction of the flow, things get clogged up. So yeah, the beavers would have to have some capability to adapt to those changing conditions that would go beyond just like an innate, let's throw some sticks here to, to stop the flow. Totally. I'm, I'm always impressed by their hydrological savvy. Like oftentimes you, you, you go to a stream and you think, okay, if I were an engineer with the Army Corps, where would I build a dam to minimize labor and maximize the total area of the impoundment, right? And beavers always choose that exact mm. spot. It's very impressive. So, you know, they're clearly, yeah, they're, 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 I think they're smarter than they give them credit for. The other thing that I'll, I'll just say, since you mentioned that uh, acoustic study, which is, you know, sort of this landmark in, in beaver ethology, is that, so, you know, I think that for a long time, people believed that the sound of running water was really the only trigger or the primary trigger for the dam building behavior, right? That it's really a kind of an acoustic trigger. But beavers are certainly, you know, they're also plugging leaks underwater. So they're obviously, you know, they're clearly fueling, you know, differentials in water pressure or something. And then the other, the other really cool thing that I've been thinking about recently is there's this famous wildlife rehabilitator who has a beaver. She's kind of become famous on, on TikTok primarily. And she posts these videos of, of her, and I forget the beaver's name, but she has this, this very kind of like TikTok famous beaver that, that lives in her house. Th those are, uh, those are words that like, 10 years ago would have made zero sense. <laughs> uh, yeah, there are probably TikTok famous beavers out there that aren't the animal. <laughs> anyway, so so one of the cool things that you can see in her TikTok in her TikTok videos is that the is that this beaver is constantly trying to dam up the door frames in her house, right? You know, the beaver's like taking clothes and toys and all kinds of stuff and just putting them in the door frame, which makes sense, right? Because the because in, in a house, the wall is the dam and the door frame is the hole in the dam, the leak in the dam. But of course, there's no sound of running water there to trigger that behavior. So there's clearly a visual trigger for dam building as well. So I think that's really interesting. So clearly the beavers are responding to multiple stimuli 
when they decide where to dam and, and how to do it. Moving on then to some of the questions that I like to ask all my guests as we wrap up anyway, if you could magically impart one ecological concept to help the general public see the world as you see it, what would that be? Um, wow, that's a good, that's a good question. What was the, the term you used earlier? The illusion of something or other uh, illusion of explanatory depth. That's a, that's a, that's a pretty good one. I'm going to, I'm going to, let me write that down actually. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I think that, that the concept of shifting baseline syndrome, which is probably something that, you know, that your guests have talked about here before that your listeners are familiar with. To me, that just has so much, so much power. And that's basically the idea that things get worse without our noticing them. It's a concept developed in fisheries where maybe your grandfather, you know, would catch these giant groupers and then he fished out those groupers and then, you know, then, and then your father would catch smaller groupers, but would think it's still fine. And today you're catching sardines, but you know, you don't really know any better because you weren't alive when your grandfather was catching giant groupers. And, you know, and someday your children will be eating jellyfish, but you know, that's okay. Um, because they have no memory of what the oceans were like during their kind of apex abundance. So I think that idea has just has so much explanatory power in, in all kinds of different fields. But, you know, I think about it in the beaver world a lot, too. I mean, these days, you know, there are probably 10 or 15 million beavers in North America. So they're not an endangered species. They're not going to go extinct anytime soon, certainly not in, in our lifetimes. So from that perspective, you know, OK, great, they're doing fine. They're a success story. But then you have to think back and realize you know, when European colonists uh, arrived on this continent, there were as many as 400 million beavers, right? There were beavers in every single, you know, river, lake, stream, pond, wetland on, on this continent. And they just changed the landscape so profoundly and beneficially. So I think that we, we need to recognize that the degraded beaver population that we have today is really a, just a very small fraction of what it once was. You know, maybe it seems like these animals are, are abundant and, you know, even ubiquitous in some places. But what we have now is, is kind of a sad imitation of the, the incredibly lush, productive, rich streams and wetlands we had at Apex Beaver. I was thinking about those numbers actually this morning. So 400 million, and let's just say for rough estimates, half of those were on streams or rivers and building dams. And mm-hmm. um, so that's 200 million. And then those dams each impounded, I don't know, 10 acre feet of water. That may be, I, I don't know if that's in the right ballpark or not, but but just as a, as a rough estimate, so 200 million times 10 acre feet, right? that's an immense amount of water. That's like 2 billion acre feet of water that has been removed from the landscape. Yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible to think about. I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't remember what the numbers were, but working on the book, I just did some kind of very rough back of the envelope math. It you know, was no more sophisticated than what you just did. And my calculation was that beavers would have covered an, an area the size of Nevada and Arizona combined. Um, it's just, you know, kind of mind blowing. And, and you can get some of that reading old trappers journals and explorers diaries and native oral histories. You know, you, you read explorers crossing the state of what is Indiana today, you know, and not finding a, a dry place to camp for a hundred miles because wow. beavers had, you know, so thoroughly ponded everything up. You know, Lewis and Clark described seeing beaver dams in every single tributary uh, of the Missouri River, you know, as far as the eye could see up to the base of the mountains. There are accounts of guys crossing areas of Utah and Wyoming that are basically desert today, you know, and finding these these spectacularly rich wetlands full of waterfowl that beavers had created. So there's just no question that this continent was so much lusher and greener and bluer thanks to beavers. And what we have today is really a, just, again, a kind of a sad imitation of historic conditions. I have this model of where people are in terms of their environmental awareness. I call it the ladder of environmental awareness. And what have you found to be most effective in helping people kind of move up that, that hypothetical ladder, regardless of where they're at? Hmm, That's a great, great question. Maybe this isn't applicable to all situations, but I mean, you know, but certainly I mean, getting people to move up the up the beaver ladder, nothing is as effective as taking them to see the animals. They're such charismatic creatures in a lot of ways. I think that's kind of one of the cool things about beavers is that their behaviors are so interesting and complex, right? I mean, no, no disrespect to the birders, but, you know, if you go see a bird, you go see a bird, 
you know, the bird is perching or it's flying or it's foraging. The behaviors are limited. I'm sure that all of your ornithologist listeners are just are just appalled by by me <laughs> saying that. But you know, but but to me, beavers are just they're just doing these unbelievably interesting things, right? They're building, they're tree felling, they're moving these large objects around the landscape. They're interacting with each other, right? They're very they're very social animals. So you know, you always see them grooming each other and playing. And they're just amazing creatures that are just so much fun to watch. And they're also really, really sympathetic animals too. You know, they have this kind of relentless drive to change their environment to maximize their own food and shelter. And that's something that we, you know, we can all empathize with as people, I think. So in my experience, people just find the animals themselves so compelling and interesting and nothing increases their concern and compassion for them quite like being around the critters. So, you know, I, I just, yeah, I would just you know, encourage everybody listening to, to get out there and find their, their local beaver pond and actually experience these animals in the flesh. Because again, there's nothing that does what they do. Yeah, I guess one way to do that, uh, I mentioned iNaturalist earlier. So hop on iNaturalist, search for American beaver or Eurasian beaver if you're in Europe and see what's been seen nearby. And that might give you a starting point anyway, to go look. One other fun thing I'll say, Michael, is that, is that you know, depending on where you are, you, you can also find their complexes via Google Earth. I often do that when I'm going to a new place. I'll just go into Google Earth and you just find, you know, find the stream and then use, and then on Google Earth, just follow that stream upstream. And often you will see a little, you know, linear interruption, uh, like a staple in the stream. That's a, a beaver dam. And then suddenly the stream kind of dramatically increases its area behind the little staple. I often do that when I'm going to a new place. And once you know what you're looking for, you'd actually do that pretty reliably. Nice. Yeah, that's a good idea, especially if you're going somewhere that is maybe underdocumented or undersurveyed or something like that. Yeah. For those who maybe aren't as able to get out and look, are there any documentaries or, or other like sort of video content you would recommend for people to learn a bit more about or see beavers in action? Yeah, my friend Sarah Koenigsberg, who's a great documentary filmmaker, she made a, a wonderful film called the, the Beaver Believers. To my knowledge, it's not on any streaming platforms at the moment, but she does screenings all the time. So if you just Google Beaver Believers movie, you'll find her website. And again, she's doing virtual screenings throughout COVID. I would check that movie out. It's, it's about the beavers, uh, of course, but it's also about the wonderful people who are using beavers as restoration tools and have joined the, the beaver believer cult. It's just full of uh, charismatic animals and charismatic humans. Cool. I'll, I'll find that and link to it as well. And how about any other upcoming projects that you have in flight that you want to highlight? Yeah, right now I'm working on uh, my next book, which is about the science of road ecology, which is basically all of the ways in which roads impact nature and how we, we mitigate those impacts. So a lot of the books about, you know, wildlife crossing structures, you know, these kind of tunnels and bridges that we build for all kinds of critters, you know, how are those designed? Where are they sited? How do we know they work? How can we build more of them? What can we do to make our infrastructure friendlier to wildlife? And, you know, to me, it's a bigger topic than beavers, for sure. There are definitely times when I wish I was still writing about a single rodent rather than like the history of human mobility. Um, <laughs> But, you know, but it's, but it, it is similar, I think, in that the story of beavers is really the story of how this animal changed our landscapes in ways we don't really understand. Beavers transformed the continent, then the loss of beavers transformed the continent, and now the return of beavers is transforming it one more time. Roads are similar in some ways. There are these structures that are, they're so ubiquitous. They're such a part of our daily lives that I think that we take them for granted in some ways. We don't notice them quite as we should. You know, I, I think that a lot of conservationists don't necessarily recognize them as being probably the single most impactful thing we do to wildlife. Was killing them on roads and or, you know, or just restricting their movements via traffic. You've got road noise, you know, which is this huge environmental pollutant, essentially. You know, you've got all of the chemical impacts of roads from the salt that we apply to roads to zinc and copper and other things coming off our, our cars. There's just this huge array of road impacts, you know, that I think are somewhat invisible to us in a lot of ways. And, you know, just as my last book, I hope, revealed the importance of beavers in a surprising way. I, I hope that this book makes readers see roads in a, a new light as well. Yeah, that's definitely a big topic. And a lot of things that I think sometimes get some press, but a lot of those topics haven't really been put together in one place. So I'm looking forward to it 
do you have a rough timeline or is it still kind of early days for that? Um, no, it's, it's getting there. Yeah. I'm supposed to turn in a draft in the next couple of months here by January 22. And then it's sort of in the editor's hands. So I think that a realistic timeline would be late 22 or, or fall or spring of 23. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm hoping for. Nice. Well, I'm fully planning to still be producing this podcast at that time. So open invite to come back. <laughs> I, I hope you are still at that point too, Michael. You know, I'm a little hesitant to ask this next question because it might open the floodgates of all the angry ornithologists from uh, your earlier comment, but how how can people <laughs> follow you or track your work online? Yes, you can send me a, an angry DM about all I don't understand about bird behavior at, on Twitter, where I'm Ben A. Goldfarb, and then my website is just bengoldfarb.com. And uh, yeah, I welcome the, the uh, I mean, that was a, just a shameless troll of, of the bird <laughs> world there. So I welcome all of the birds and ornithologists telling me how limited my conception of bird behavior really is. I'll just say one thing, uh, bower bird. Sure. Yeah. We don't, we don't have those in North America. Yeah, I can't go see those by the Spokane river, but yes, bower birds are unbelievable. Of course. You know, I, mean, I mean, mannequins, you know, of course have those, those incredible mating dances. So I'm not selling birds short. Now, I mean, that's like, that's like one of the great things about beaver watching too, right? Is that even if you go to a beaver complex and you don't see the beavers, you are guaranteed to see some exciting birds. I, I certainly uh, enjoy birding it. I'm not just a beaver guy, you know, I'm, I'm always happy to see a, a kingfisher, a great blue heron or, not, or an osprey. Oh, I, I know where you're coming from. Anyway, it's been really enjoyable and I hope it's been enjoyable for you as well. Oh, it's been great, Michael. Thanks for all of the all of the sharp questions, and thanks for doing this podcast and for moving us all up the uh, up the the nature ladder. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks for sticking through the entire episode. If you made it this far, I hope that it means that you enjoyed it. If so, please spread the word and share this episode with three friends or groups that you think would enjoy it too. As for today's episode, let me know. Did I miss anything? Was there a topic I should have covered? Let me know at podcast at jumpstartnature.com or DM me on any of my social accounts. I'll do my best to answer your questions. You can find me at Nature's Archive, one word, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I also share photography, nature stories, and much more on those accounts, so you can follow just to stay in touch, too. And despite being called crazy by numerous friends and colleagues, last year I left my tech career behind to start Jumpstart Nature, which Nature's Archive is now part of. For the sake of myself, my family, and the planet, I need to make this work. So please also consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash jumpstartnature. I offer some exclusive content and perks, and you can start donations as low as $4 a month. Lastly, please also check out our latest creation. It's the Jumpstart Nature podcast. We just completed our pilot season, where each episode reveals an unseen, surprising, or misunderstood nature topic with the help of experts and our host, Griff Griffith. It's entertaining and inspiring, and even reached number three on the Apple Nature podcast charts. There's much more on our roadmap, but we need your support. So check out jumpstartnature.com for more details. Thank you.